Welcome to the Architects of Ambition, the podcast where dreams take shape and futures are built. I'm Lyndon Dover, your guide on this journey of discovery and design, brought to you by Weaver, the online platform that's connecting contractors with the visionaries of architecture. Every episode, we delve into the minds of those who dare to imagine and create the spaces we live, work and play in. Let's get started. Matteo, hi. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Hi. Hi. Nice to see you. <laughs> you too. Well, look, before we dive into the hot topic of the, what we're terming the green revolution, how small UK practices like yours are building a path to a sustainable future for, for our country, tell us a bit more about you. Tell us a bit more about your practice, what type of buildings you're helping design, realise, and a bit about your path to where you are today, Matteo. We are Boito Sarno Architects. Um, uh, we are a small practice uh, based in London, um, but we also have work in France and in Italy. And um, in the UK, we work predominantly on uh, listed buildings, um, doing extensions, retrofit, and sometimes even change of use. Uh, we're working on a stables uh, block uh, from the 1920s, which we are converting on a mill as well. Yeah, and my path to sustainability, um, while well, I was working in a large practice, Hopkins Architects, on a really, really massive building in central London. And um, I kind of, there was a lot to talk about sustainability, but um, I kind of felt bad about what I was doing really in many ways, because I kind of started to realize that you know, there's a lot of greenwash around. And um, so I joined ACAM the Architects Climate Action Network, and I got specifically interested in embodied carbon um, because I think a lot of the greenwash that comes out of the big practices is about embodied carbon. So you often hear, oh, this is a very sustainable building, famously the Bloomberg building one in 2018, the sterling price, because it was the most sustainable office building. But that was just because, you know, according to the river, the most sustainable office building ever built. But... It was just because of its energy news, not of the embodied carbon. And the embodied carbon is sort of always conveniently forgotten. Uh, <laughs> and I think things have changed a lot since 2018. Also, thanks to the work that we've done with ACAM and the campaign that we've done, so people are much more aware of it. I mean, another kind of example that is kind of backbear of mine is the vertical forest in Milan, which is this skyscraper, which has got a lot of trees on it, which every single time there is an article about sustainability, that building is kind of like the photo that, you know, like the photo editor picks. And um, I have a, a fantastic photo of uh, the building under construction where you can see the amount of concrete and steel that, the extra concrete and steel that goes into uh, building a building like that because there's a hell of a lot of extra weight from the trees and the soil and water and all that. So it's not a green building. And also, um, we all know that the grid is decarbonizing. Um, so energy news obviously is really important. So things like passive house are still very important. But passive house doesn't take into account the embodied carbon of the building that is being built, which is all of that carbon that gets emitted uh, to make the materials. And the biggest culprits are the metals, the steel and the aluminium and the concrete. So when I set up my own practice um, with my colleague uh, from, from Hopkins, actually, Andrea, um, we just decided, look, you know, we're going to make embodied carbon a really big thing in, you know, in the architecture that we're going to do, you know, in, in our own practice. And to be honest, you know, like in small buildings, 
things. You know, there's really, it's so easy to use timber instead of steel and concrete. You know, when you think about it, like all of Victorian buildings are brick and then a timber frame, you know. Uh, but it was such an uphill struggle at the beginning because contractors are so used to just do, if you do an extension, for example, you need to support the rear outrigger. You know, like the, the default is just to put a piece of steel, like a big beam and then a column and that column needs to land on a big concrete footing. And that's just how things are done normally. So, you know, in our first projects, we instead looked at using only timber and also one of the biggest elements where a lot of carbon gets burned from the beginning and is actually the foundations mm. because of the concrete. And it's just because we got this kind of very standard thing going on of, you know, having a meter deep concrete footing, you know, and it's a lot, you know, just for an extension. Before we maybe dig into like the solutions <laughs> and uh, what you're doing specifically on to upgrading pre-war London stock uh, and you know ex uh, listed buildings that you mainly work with or heritage buildings uh, that you like to work with thinking about um, sustainability knowledge uh, amongst your peers or maybe your clients even or contractors or consultants you're working with like how do you perceive the current state of knowledge and awareness among small practices in the UK when it comes to sustainable architecture practices like I think you mentioned it passive house um, or the idea of embodied carbon being something they should think about first. How well do you think your peers are understanding the options of sustainable architecture out there? Well, I, I think, you know, as I say, in the last five years or so, um, things have improved enormously. And I think it's thanks to the work of ACAM, Architects Eclair, uh, there's been a lot of events, you know, a lot of webinars, you know, during COVID and now like a lot of in-person events as well. And and I think there is a much better awareness, um, even in small practices. I think the problem is that there isn't regulation yet. So, you know, I think often architects and also clients want to do the right things, but um, until there is regulation, obviously we have regulation in part health for um, energy news, but there isn't any regulation for embodied carbon. And, um, and also I think th there is awareness amongst architects, I think more than there is amongst contractors, even though that is changing. And I think, you know, um, I know you've done um, an event that was very, uh, it was very useful. It's the first time I've actually done a sustainability event with contractors because it's always architects talking about sustainability amongst each other. So sometimes contractors, you know, like, um, I, I found myself in situations in which contractors, you know, like see kind of green stuff in, you know, in, in a kind of tender and they kind of like say, oh my God, this is going to be expensive without actually looking at it properly because there is a sort of perception. Yeah, I've heard that before, that sort of uh, green premium. It's almost, yeah. you know, I've seen it before sometimes with postcodes, you know, that, oh, it's Hackney or it's, you know, Knightsbridge, we, you know, we'll definitely need because of the traffic management plans around there or just because of the, the, the affordability, you know, the, the price tag goes up, which is a shame. And I think sometimes people have, been that way as with you know oh it's scary oh I don't understand it I'm going to put a premium on because of the extra time I'm going to have to handle this yeah no, absolutely and um, I, I think you know there are some very good um, you know building products and merchant for natural materials out there and you know I found that when you put them in contact with a contractor and you get them to kind of do a proper quote you know say for example natural insulation like then you realize that actually wood fiber insulation isn't 
you know, that crazy thing <laughs> that, you know, like, contacted the schedule. And actually, I've had some really good feedback, you know, especially for roofing, using wood fiber insulation with the softening board and then, you know, like more flexible insulation between the rafters. Contractors actually found it really, really nice to work with because it's so easy to cast a bit like wood. I mean, in general, wood is nice to, to work with, you know, more than kind of plasticky materials and stuff. So once uh, contractors are made aware of, you know, what it actually is and they use it, you know, they like it as well. Yeah, it just needs a bit of education, which I'm sure means as for you as an architect, though, there's more time required to uh, explain not just to the client, I'm sure, but also to the contractor that this isn't a tricky detail. This isn't, uh, you know, something that's going to hinder you. It might even help speed up the program, perhaps, in some circumstances. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, obviously um, there are things that are, you know, like more difficult. I'm not saying that it's, everything is kind of, it's true that, you know, like it, there are certain things that, you know, are more expensive and, but, I know, I think overall, there are some easy wins, you know, that I think is definitely like worth looking into. That's great. And and what you were saying about knowledge amongst your peers, obviously at Hopkins, you had a, you could lean on that training or you could lean on maybe the understanding of some of the sustainable core knowledge. I know that obviously you've gone on and and, um, supplemented that hugely. But do you think as a small practice, they're at a disadvantage in terms of being able to keep up, being able to obviously working on designs they've got currently on, on the decks, but also trying to keep on top of the new up and coming materials or legislation, et cetera. Is it harder as a small practice to keep on top of what sustainable architecture means? I mean, obviously like a large practice like Hopkins that were actually pioneers in some you know technologies and built some of the first kind of green buildings or you know in the uk it, that was an amazing experience to work there and to kind of tap on into that although like as a large practice they also had like you know big big projects which weren't particularly green and as a small practice i think i, I think there is so much going on now like for example just going to kind of aken events you know there's been so many different things about because now it's kind of you know there's so many different groups so there is natural material ones and you know, I think there is there is a lot of information and Letty have done loads of really interesting events and also like that's why I'm saying there's been a big change in the last five years because all of these resources have been made available for free because we're all kind of volunteers. So you just need to go on the Letty website to look at, you know, like now there are guides for every typology, you know, like you have the sort of conservation area toolkit. Well that's actually by A kind of conservation area toolkit, but that's basically all you need to know to kind of do a refurbishment or retrofit of Victorian house uh, in a very very green way and like that's all written down there and all the there are different lefty guides um, on embodied carbon on energy news and on all the different kind of buildings in uh, from different eras 1930s you know like listed uh, pre-19 pre-19th century 19th century you know so yeah there's some like there's so much free information now that I think for small practices it's so much easier than it used to be yeah that's good to hear and um, I think there's definitely still challenges, though, in in general in sustainable architecture. As a practice, like, what are some of the key challenges that you find you face when trying to sort of integrate your sustainable design principles into projects, particularly in, in residential architecture? What do you find are the key key challenges? 
So a lot of the embodied carbon goes into the foundations. It's much quicker and easier for contractors to do concrete foundations, but they use a lot of carbon because of the concrete. And so screw piles are much better. And I have a project in which, you know, like I have a photo of the foundation of this extension and it's literally like four little screw piles linked together by a piece of steel. And this is the foundations, you know, but it was, you know, and there are companies that do it. And it just requires a little bit more attention and contractors are not so used to it. And it has to be very precise. So like, you you know, the the tolerances are not so forgiving. So... So that's one thing, but so and it's difficult to push it because often contractors say, "Oh, this is so much more expensive," and the client goes, "Oh, you know, like, okay, I'm just going to do a normal concrete foundation." And that's it. I've been working with sort of like-minded structural engineers, you know, that um, because also for the structural engineer, it's a little bit more work because they kind of need to design this thing. So that's one thing. Um, then the other thing is because you know, it's always the structure is where a lot of embodied carbon goes. You know, like so as architects from the beginning, we need to engage with the structural engineer, and um, so yeah, the kind of internal structure. When we decided that embodied carbon was going to be a big thing for our practice, uh, we decided that you know, and also because we come from sort of high tech kind of background, we thought we just put the two things together. But essentially, like we just always expose the structure. So the structure becomes the main architectural feature, at which point, if it's timber, if it's a glue lamb beam, for example, often with um, extensions at the rear, there is, you know, you need to support the outrigger and there's a big beam doing that and normally steel. And um, we've done a project in which we use glue lamb, which is um, an engineer tim- timber beam, which is normally used for like big spans, like swimming pools or something. And we used it in a, in a house, but it's just such a beautiful thing and it's become the main feature. And, you know, it was expensive for a beam, but, you know, like it wasn't, you know, so expensive compared to the overall budget. And also uh, because we didn't cover it up with plasterboard, uh, which you would have done with steel, you know, like in the end, uh, and because it's the main feature, in the end, you know, like it's money that the client was happy to spend because it's something that they actually look at, look at and, you know, um, it's beautiful as well. It's not just kind of buried under something, you know, and like the foundations they, they don't really look at. <laughs> Function is form and it's true uh, capacity there. And I, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, if you don't add the cost of fire retardant, uh, you know, paint or, uh, you know, fire retardant plasterboard and the skim and the decoration that goes on top of that steel, I, I'm sure it's not too far away. Um, but I think that's, that's um it must be in a beautiful finish um with that but did it take a lot of quite interested to dig into that that challenge that you were talking about about the screw piles or about you know trying to champion glulam instead of steel enclosed steel did it take a lot of persuasion of the client to like well look you know you could do it that way and this much co2 will be produced or you could do it this way and a lot less and it do you have to go through this whole cost exercise for each element with the homeowner or the end client before you get the sort of okay? Or, or, or is it just your self-selecting clients uh, that you that are sort of giving you free reign? So it just depends. So, uh, and, you know, like we had a client who was actually a member of the Green Party and we were so excited because we thought, oh, you know, this is, you know, like we can actually talk about the carbon and, you know, we will... We understand everything, and actually, it, 
it was very contradictory. You know, at the beginning, said, like, "Yeah, let's do it," and then <laughs> kind of, you know, it just got like this very cheap contractor that was opposed to everything, and so like that wasn't a very good story. Then this another client actually really liked, you know, she she was really keen on to having exposed timber beams just because she likes them. So she was part of the brief just from an aesthetic point of view. And we were like saying, oh, well, this is perfect because this is exactly what we do. And then, then she was happy to kind of, you know, get this really beautiful oak blue lamb beam because, you know, she actually liked it, but it was also part of the sustainability. So I often find that you've got to give two different reasons. Like, for example, with screw piles, sometimes there is some certain soil conditions in which it's better to use them and also certain conditions yeah. in which... For example, I use them on a house on a hill. The next, you know, it's a terrace and the next terrace is kind of almost a meter deep uh, lower. And so it was going to be quite complicated to kind of excavate, you know, like the, the, the footings for, for a concrete footing um, because it was so close to the party wall and, you know, like the party wall was actually lower, so it was exposed. So like actually piles make sense in that, con- that situation. So yeah, sometimes it's kind of, you know, I, I try to find alongside the sort of the green reason, another reason to go with it. And it, 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 that happens as well, a lot of kind of with natural materials. So, you know, like natural materials are also more or less the same as conservation materials often. Um, so if you use, you know, if you have a, a house, you know, that had like, you know, lime mortar, and then you say to the client, because it's, you know, it's an old house, it's a Victorian house, it's a listed house. And then you just can say to the client, look, I just want to use lime everywhere because it works with the house. And it's actually, from a conservation point of view, that's the right thing. But also, we're not using cementitious, you know, mortars, for example. Another one that I do a lot is GSL, which is basically is a recycled glass aggregate. Again, it's normally used for like massive things like stadiums. But um, it's, it's basically like hardcore, which you can compact and then build a slab over. But because it's made of recycled glass, okay. um, it's very sustainable. And it also has insulating properties. But it's also very good for conservation projects because it's like little pebbly things. So water can move around. The water doesn't get pushed to the sides. And then, you, you know, often if you just redo a slab, Say you build a concrete slab next to a brickwork uh, wall, a, a Victorian one that doesn't have a BPC, that, that concrete slab is going to push all water towards that building. And then, you know, you're going to have a problem mm. with like rising down into the old wall. Whereas if you use this aggregate, which lets water move around, um, you know, like it, it has the added benefit that there is a kind of better distribution of humidity and water. Um, so, you know, sometimes, you know, like you get two wins together. Yeah, absolutely. That's um, working with the building that's existing. And thinking about older buildings, thinking about, you know, typically most of London um, is pre-war London stock, especially when you're talking about houses or Victorian houses or, or earlier. Like, apart from screw piles and GSL, and um, what what are, what are the cost-effective strategies or innovative approaches can small practices like yours um, employ to, to to maybe try and be sustainable but stay within budget? I think it's also about doing uh, less. So if you just start from the design and you just think, if you have a very good design that is quite lean and you just don't add 
things that are not needed. And sometimes, you know, I, if I'm just about reorganizing the space in a, in a way that, you know, a design stage, um, maybe you don't need such a huge extension and you can keep a, a slightly bigger garden and then, you know, you build less. Or sometimes you don't need to demolish certain things, you know, like you, trying to keep as much as possible of what is already there. So, you know, we, that's another thing that we do a lot is we, we say what is already there is pressure. And I think it's an approach that really like starts again from conservation. You know, like if you're working on a grade one listed monument, you literally cannot remove anything, you know, like, and if even, you know, if something is rotten, say like a timber beam in a grade one listed cathedral, if a part of it is rotten, you just remove the bit that is rotten and you just, you add, um, you know, a bit that is new. And, you know, like if we just had this approach with everything, you know, even in maybe buildings like a Victorian building, which is, you know, it's not like a grade one listed cathedral, but, um, you know, trying to keep as much as possible. And to be honest, I actually argued with Aiken that we should do that with everything now because, you know, there should be a moratorium on demolition completely. And even like modern buildings should be treated like that because, you know, resources are so scarce. Um, and we've got so much of this stuff around that really all we ought to be doing is just, um, refurbishing it and making it suitable for, you know, modern times, but we shouldn't really kind of demolish and throw away things, you know. It's really interesting that you say, you know, less is more. I think I've heard a lot of architects um, who are sustainably driven really when they get a new client is really interrogate the brief. Like, do you need the extra square meterage? How are you using your home? Like, what's the reason you want, you know, exactly the same as your neighbor next door? I think that's a really uh, big point. But it also neatly brings me on to sort of what you're talking about, demolishing and rebuilding. There's a VAT implication. There's a 20% saving. So um, what do you think the government can do or what can they start doing um, uh, and supporting UK small practices in, in, in helping drive more sustainability and small residential architecture or development? What do you think that the government can do more of? Well, you know, like ACAN has been campaigning for ages to change the VAT so that it's, you know, at the moment there is this very perverse thing that you don't pay VAT on your bill, but you do on retrofit on refurbishment and is not i think almost everyone has been calling for this now <laughs> to, to be changed for years so it's just really frustrating that it hasn't happened and i hope it will happen and in terms of uh, from a small practice point of view of course most of our work is not new build because it's the very nature of you know the fact that in the uk like you know the vast majority of the housing stock has already been built, it just needs to be upgraded, which, you know, so yeah, for, from a small practice point of view, I think we, it would be a great incentive if the government changed the VAT because I think small practices would have, would have, you know, would have more work because homeowners would have a little bit more money to, to do their refurbishment. So it would be a win-win. And do you think there's anything else in terms of, I suppose, there's quite a confusing landscape of terminology uh, or on targets. Is there anything else that, that the government could do to help speed up sustainability awareness and um, action one of the things that when i did the work on embodied carbon um came out was that obviously we wanted a path z and there's also like another campaign movement that is campaigning for path z for um to have a whole life carbon assessment of projects as part of you know 
the building regulations with some targets. And I think, you know, for small practices, it's a little bit more work and you need to think about how you're going to charge a client for it. But if there is a building reg, you know, then you would just say, well, I need to do it because it's a building reg. Whereas now we just, I kind of do it uh, because I want to, but, you know, so that would help us. And also I think there is another part of the building reg, which is, um, it's, it's called part seven. Nobody ever looks at it because uh, it's a, it's very small and it's a bit obscure, but basically it just says, you know, material should be fit for purpose. It's very generic, but, you know, like if a material is sold as a building material, it should have some basic standard. One of the things that we thought would be very useful is to use that regulation to just essentially ban certain things that are so high in bulk carbon that, you know, and they're not kind of strictly necessary for the building industry. So maybe they're convenient or maybe they're cheap or, you know, there's, there are some forms which are like, you know, from an embodied carbon point of view are just, you know, criminal and they shouldn't really be around, you know. And based on that as well, I just think one thing that would help us a lot is also the EPDs. At the moment, EPDs are really, really difficult to understand and to read. And there isn't a proper kind of database that you can quickly go and check an EPD. So when we're specifying things, sometimes as a small practice, we spend a hell of a lot of time to actually understand what is the actual impact of something that we're specifying and comparing it to something else because we go to the next EPDs and it's like, you know, using slightly different metrics. So it's not quite the same, you know. So, and I know there's a lot of people doing work on this and there are good things coming up. But yeah, I think that would help. It's almost like a, bl a blacklist of terrible uh, <laughs> materials that shouldn't be used don't use these or even ban them from being uh, on the shelves and then a much better collated uh, database of of what um the energy performance is of, of materials that you're installing yeah designing those are great great things to champion for yeah i know that Matteo, you wear a lot of hats as as an architect and you wear even more because you also teach um at westminster university so quite interesting question I don't get to ask all of my um, people coming on as guests. Do you find that your teaching um, helps keep you relevant and challenged? And, you know, have you found that your students are making you aware of uh, sustainability in a different way that you may maybe haven't come across? Yeah, absolutely. I think today, today to be an architect, you also have to be an activist. And that's, you know, definitely been my story. And a lot of my kind of colleagues at Aiken, I just think like, you know, with, with with a climate crisis and a climate emergency, you can't just and then not, you know, like um, challenge the situation that we are in. So um, in terms of uh, my teaching, one of the things I'm very interested in um, is the political context, which is not just down to the regulations, but it's about why we are where we are in terms of the climate emergency. And that is to do with um, our political system, it's to do with capitalism, it's, about, it's to do with colonialism, social justice. And uh, this year with our students, uh, we, are go we are looking actually at a site in Catford uh, where there is a council estate, which is one of the most degraded in the UK, where it's a really, you know, the, the residents have been ignored for years and it's damaged the crime of the estate. But it's also a really, really interesting uh, site in terms of the sort of layering of different uses and all of these different things coming together in terms of, you know, 1960s uh, housing design, uh, 
there's a shopping center underneath. Uh, there is the South Circular cutting across. There are some really interesting civic buildings from, from the 60s. And then there's, you know, Victorian terraces. So there's all these different things coming together. And the students are looking at all these different typologies, but also thinking how we can actually reorganize at the municipal level a society that is more sustainable. So yeah, like, and we are talking about things that have to do with like, you know, things like um, half-earth socialism, which is a great book I recommend it to everyone, which is about rewilding half of the earth, but also like um, having a sort of society which is based on socialist principles and, and rather than just exploitation of resources. There's another book which is really great, which is called Less is More, um, which is about degrowth. We are reading uh, Kate Rayford, the um, Donuts Economics. So yeah, all these things are really relevant. And sometimes, you know, like whilst I, I speak to the students, sometimes we just talk about whole life carbon assessment, which is, becomes a very kind of practical thing. But, you know, sometimes it's kind of like talk about the kind of bigger picture, you know, and the economic system and all of that. Well, fascinating. And that kind of brings me maybe to my last question, which is, I always ask this, which is, if a studio is trying to become more sustainable, they've been doing traditional architecture and they go, oh, geez, I'm not doing enough. Um, I know that you've mentioned quite a few different places they can go or um, uh, in, in the uh, the chat, but what would be your advice um, to those architects, either coming from big practice, starting their own thing or trying to get on uh, and become more sustainable? What would be your sort of um, uh, top tips to, to becoming more aware? Well, first of all, get involved some sort of activism, join join a group, because I think you can't really do it completely on your own. It's really good to kind of chat with other people, other architects, and get involved in a campaign is great. And there are so many different campaigns. I mean, you know, there's people that have been trying to talk to the ARB to change, you know, the way the architects registration board kind of ethics can works, or like there are people that work in universities, people that work in natural materials, you know. So there's so many things that you can get, get involved in. So that that's one thing to learn. And then the other thing is, um, yeah, just try to kind of find like-minded kind of engineers, consultants to work with, you know, people that are interested in working with timber rather than steel and concrete only, and that, you know, are kind of prepared to kind of spend a little bit more time designing the foundations. And then with the clients, I think, you know, it's about, you know, just not just saying, oh, you know, like it's just a sustainable building. You can just say, oh, you know, natural materials have got all these like, different benefits for health, which is true. You know, like it's so nice to have like a natural materials in a house, you know, take them on the journey with you. Yeah, I just think, I think these are the main things. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's really good advice. Thank you. Well, look, Matteo, if someone wants to get in touch um, about, uh, uh, you know, doing a project with you or just learning more about what you're up to or just getting in touch generally how what would be the best way of doing that well if you go on our website it's a link to an email we're also on instagram yeah so yeah please by all means yeah get in touch and we can answer any questions thanks so much cheers for being on the show Matteo. that's really fascinating thank you thank you very much and that's a wrap on this episode of architects of ambition i'm lyndon dover thanking you for joining us on this podcast proudly presented by weaver but connections are more than just blueprints. They're the building blocks of reality. Until next time, stay ambitious and keep designing those dreams.